morning, everyone. And pre-Merry Christmas, we've still got a couple days. Um, we are in our last of our four series on Unto Us a Child, looking at the book of Isaiah and that prophecy. Having already seen Isaiah chapter 7, 9, 11, today we're going to conclude with a message from Isaiah chapter 53. But before we move there, we need to talk about trust. Trust is a really tough thing. I think it was Billy Graham had shared an illustration of trust gone bad when he said that a, a young father or a young father and a new son, uh, they were having a conversation one day at the park and the son, uh, or the father asked the son, would you trust me to catch you if you fell back? You know, one of those trust fall type of things. And the son says, oh, of course I would trust you. And the, uh, the father says, okay, well, let's do that. Close your eyes, put your hands, cross your arms, and fall back, and I'm going to catch you. And so the little son goes, okay, no problem, I'm going to do this. Uh, crosses his arms, falls back, and the father at the last second moves away. And the son slams into the ground, and the father goes, let that be a lesson to you. Don't trust anyone. Now, that's... That's a terrible lesson, <laughs> a terrible lesson. And I remember that as a, as a kid growing up, or whatever I heard uh, Billy Graham talk about that illustration. And um, from that point forward, I have refused to do a trust fall with anyone. And I thought today, maybe today would be the time to show people that I can trust other people. But then I said no. Not that I don't, like, love everyone, not that I don't appreciate everyone. Uh, over the years, I've become a little bit larger than I was when I was a child, and it would take maybe two or three guys to really to, to accept my weight. And I, I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. No trust fall today. Because uh, if I fell and I hurt my head, then I wouldn't be able to continue, and oh, it would just be a whole mess for Christmas. But we all see that imagery of the trust fall. And maybe you've gone to business meetings or you had kind of these team building exercises where you had to do a trust fall and maybe it was successful for you. Has anyone successfully done a trust fall? Wow, that was a lot more than I thought. That's incredible. Um, Got to tell me what that experience was like because I am scared of doing that. Completely scared. I think God realizes that trust is a tough thing for us to have, especially with one another, but also with God. Trust is difficult even when we consider trusting God, because there's a sense where I can see you, I know that you are there, I know at least you're behind me, but with God, we don't see him. We hear him, we have a feeling of his impression and presence with us, but we don't see him. And so when God says, trust in me, it's hard for us. And I realize that it is a challenge to have that type of faith and trust that God requires of us because he's not always with us. In fact, Jesus prays in multiple times and says, hey, I pray for the people who are far off, who believe even though they don't see what his disciples are seeing. Trust is a difficult thing. And Isaiah has been showing us each week that God is revealing himself to a hurting and warring world 
through the virgin birth and that that child will be honored, he will be God, and he will establish peace. How he will establish peace so we can trust him to accomplish that is the challenge. We see the promises, we see the little pictures of it, but how can we know for sure that God is going to really establish peace? How can we trust him to put an end to the war that happens within us due to sin? How can we trust him that he will make peace on earth and bring goodwill to all? How, how can we really trust him since we don't see him? He's asking us to just simply fall back and believe that he is back there catching us. I think he establishes that trust. I think we can entirely give our lives over to him even though we can't see him behind us because of what he's already accomplished in history. Everything that's written in the book of Isaiah, the people that it was written to, all the prophecies and preaching that Isaiah did were 650 to 700 years in the future for them. But for us, it's all history. It's all past events. So we can see clearly God has done this and this and this and this. That's a beautiful comfort for us. Because he's not asking us just simply to fall back into thin air. He's asking us to fall back upon his promises and history that has already been fulfilled. So we can trust him. We can have confidence. We can have faith that when he says, this is what my son will accomplish, this is what Emmanuel will do, this is what the Messiah will do, we can look back and say, you're right. In history, it has happened. So we are not trusting hope. We are trusting in historical fact. Maybe that takes the edge off a little bit and we can trust him and we can put our faith in him. Even though Emmanuel will be powerful, anointed and very successful, yet at the same time, he's going to suffer for all humanity. And that is this tension that rests all through Scripture. The, the Messiah will be triumphant, but he will also suffer. He's king, although he's also a servant. He's magnificent, although he is incredibly lowly. He is rich beyond all means, and yet he takes residence in a stable. There's that tension, and that tension culminates in Isaiah chapter 53. Turn there with me in your Bibles, unless you have the U version, and turn there to Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to look at this rather quickly, and just, just so we kind of set the stage, Isaiah chapter 53 is often called the suffering savior as a chapter title. And that might seem a little weird and out of context if we're talking about his birth, if we're talking about celebrating his birthday in a few days. Why are we talking about his suffering? Because you can't have one without the other. The Messiah is indeed a suffering king. He is indeed a lowly master. And Scripture keeps these two ideas in tension so that we would see and that we would find relationship with him and that we would find someone that we can relate to, that we can have confidence that he can relate to us. And it starts out in the first three verses. 
Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like the root out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, a man familiar with pain, like one from whom the people hid their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. That's prophecy. Prophecy regarding the fact that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was not going to have everyone attracted to him because he was the most attractive, because he was an amazing speaker, or he just looked the part. That was the opposite. And looking at him in a field of people, he'd be the one who would not be recognized. He'd be the one who would be that wallflower, ignored. Not invited, not popular, not the kid who sat at the popular table, not the one who had the most likes on Instagram, but he was just kind of plainly average to the point of we ignored him because he wasn't anything special. Man, maybe some of us can kind of relate to that. Maybe some of us were at the popular table, but maybe some of us were kind of just that one that everyone just sort of ignored and let pass. And that's how Christ grew up in our culture, in our nation, in our, in our world, in this environment that he created. He grew up as just kind of an average Joe. No one that would sort of make it to the top by his looks alone. That's good because sometimes the people that make it to the top by the looks alone certainly don't have the mind and intelligence to go with it or the ability to go with it. But with Jesus, he was born humbly. He lived humbly. He grew up humbly. He grew up just average. What can an average Savior do? Someone who is not extraordinarily attractive, no great appearance that we should desire him. And this is where I have a little commentary on how difficult I find some of these pictures of Jesus. If you've ever seen a picture or a painting of Jesus, you will recognize a few things. One, he looks a little bit too white. Secondly, he has this gorgeous flowing hair. Gorgeous flowing hair. And he looks really sharp. He looks really attractive. That goes against everything that Scripture has to say about him. I don't think a real picture of Jesus would be one that you'd want hanging in your house because we're told here he's not that attractive. But yet every picture you see, every painting you see of him, it is like, oh, a beautiful, maybe a little hippie styled, but that's how he dressed, in a robe, and just flowing gorgeous hair. And I've even seen pictures of him with blue eyes. I've never seen someone that was Arab with blue eyes. But yet, in these pictures, he looks gorgeously handsome. That's not reality. That's not truth. That's just an artist wanting to sell pictures because a difficult-looking person wouldn't sell many portraits. But with Jesus, he wasn't here to sell portraits. He wasn't here to sell pictures. He wasn't here to grace books or to be on a billboard. He was here in spite of all those physical attractions to give us something better and greater. 
And we see some of that starting in verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He took our pain and he took our suffering. You need anyone to take your pain? You need anyone to take your suffering? You need anyone to relate to what you're going through. You need anyone to go through the trials that you're going through. You need someone to relate to you. I mean, you might think that you're going through something extraordinary that no one else has ever gone through. That's how it feels at the moment. When you're going through something that is dark, that is challenging, you actually begin to believe you're all alone and no one else has ever experienced that. Have you felt that before? I have. I felt it when my father died, that no one else had ever experienced that. No one else knew what it was like to have a father die when you were a young child. How arrogant of me. How singular focused I was to think I'm the only one that goes through this so I can act and behave any way I want because I'm unique. Yes, you are uniquely made, but the things you go through are not unique. Other people have gone through death. Other people have gone through financial ruin. Other people have gone through losing a spouse, losing a child, losing a parent, losing your health. Other people have gone through that. Jesus uniquely is able to take that pain, take that sorrow, and experience it right along with you. You are never alone in your pain and suffering. He continues in verse 4, Even though he took our pain, even though he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. On that cross, the world didn't flock to him going, All right! The world ridiculed him, made fun of him, shamed him abused him, laughed at him, cursed at him, spit at him, hit him, mocked him. Even though what he was doing was for all of them. In fact, it says, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So in that event upon the cross, while we did not think anything of him, we didn't think highly of him, we thought he was cursed by God. Yet in that cursed moment, he was taking all of our pain all of our suffering, all of our sorrow, all of our dark places, all of our sin, and himself bearing it. Becoming victorious, but taking it all upon himself. Why? Why would he want to bear his own upon his shoulders? This is a question for the parents. Have you ever had a child who was sick? Yes. The answer is just yes. I'm not asking for a raise of hands. The answer is yes. As a parent, have you ever, when your child has been sick, thought to yourself, I wish I could take that for me. I wish they didn't have to go through that. 
I wish I could take that sickness for them. Have you ever thought that as a parent? You could be an aunt and an uncle, any relative. You ever think of that for someone else? Absolutely. Why? Because you're a sadist? Do you want to be punished? No. Because you want for your child safety and peace and comfort. And you would rather endure that sickness than have them do it because of this thing called love. So why did Jesus bear our suffering? Why did he bear our pain? Why did he take our dark places? Why did he take our sin? Why did he suffer humiliation? Why was he nailed to a cross? Why, did he, why was he born a child of humble circumstances? Why? Because his love is incredibly great for you. Like a parent for a child. But more than that, willing to suffer the wrath of God on your behalf. Verse 7 continues in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before the shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Remember that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas had already betrayed him, and he was being surrounded by the Sanhedrin guard, the temple guards, and being taken away. And Peter, bless his heart, felt like this was the end of the world. I'm going to take a sword, and I'm going to start hacking, and then cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. Remember that moment? And then Jesus miraculously picks up that severed ear, puts it back on his head, and heals the servant. You would have think at that moment everyone would have fallen down and worshiped God. They didn't. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, if I wanted to, I could call down the legion of angels to protect me. But I won't. And he went from that moment all the way through those circus trials and circus courts and just simply remained silent. So much to the point that it was aggravating his accuser, saying, aren't you going to speak? Aren't you going to defend yourself? And Jesus, even before Pilate, eh, I don't have anything to say. Because all of this, all of this humiliation, all of these false accusations is going to accomplish something. You don't see it yet. It's been promised, but you don't realize it yet. All of this is for such a greater good. And I know we use that phrase often. It's for the greater good. You don't have it now, but in the future, it's for the greater good. It's for your greater good. Jesus lived that phrase. It's for your greater good. That greater good is that he was oppressed, afflicted, didn't open his mouth, led like a lamb to the slaughter, a sheep before the shears, so he did not open his mouth. He could have. He could have said, stop this. This is unfair how you're treating me, but he didn't. Because he knew that he had to bear our dark places. He had to bear our sin. He had to bear our shame, our suffering, our penalty, if the greater good was going to come to pass. It says in verse 8, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? No one stood up for him. In fact, Peter, 
the number one disciple. How did he respond when he was asked, hey, don't you know this Jesus guy? What did he say? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. I'm sure you know him. No, I don't know him. I know you were with him. By God in heaven, I don't know the man. No one came to his aid. No one stood up for him. No one rallied around him. No one challenged the court proceedings and how unfair it was. No one dared attack and try to free him. No one from his generation cared. For he was cut off from the land of the living and for the transgressions of my people he was punished. That's the end game. He was punished for the transgressions of us. For your transgressions. For your sins. Not just the big ones, but even the little ones. Even the little white ones that we kind of let slide because culture expects us just to lie like that or to do that. Jesus paid them all. Every transaction was laid on him. Even the ones no one else in this room knows about. Those secret ones that you keep hidden in your heart, that you just keep in your mind, that you dare not share because everyone would go, oh, I can't believe they're like that. Everyone's hidden, deepest, darkest sins. Jesus revealed on the cross and said, I'm taking them, Father. They're no longer their sins, but now rest them upon my shoulders. And he was punished for that. Verse 9 tells us he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was innocent. He was as innocent as an innocent lamb. He'd done nothing wrong. He had kept the law from birth to the moment of his last breath. He never lied. He never deceived. He never stole. He never tore someone down to make himself feel better. He never cheated. He never disobeyed a law. I can't fathom how someone could do that. Always got angry for the right reason. The right reason. Always honored his father and mother. Never dishonored God. Never took his name in vain. Never committed murder in his heart. Never lusted in his heart. Could he be like that? No human has ever been like that before. But he's not merely human. He's fully God and fully man. Part of the mystery of the incarnation, part of the mystery of the virgin birth, part of the mystery of the Christ child. Fully God and fully man. Had to be man so he could relate to us and had to be fully God to bear the punishment of all of his children. Not one single man could bear that punishment. Had to be perfect. So he would be a perfect sacrifice, a perfect atonement, a perfect Messiah. God with us. Verse 10 
chapter 40, 53 of Isaiah turns a little bit. All the previous verses have been somewhat dark. Talking about sin, talking about suffering, talking about, oh, he was no one to look at. Definitely would never paint a picture of him. He suffered. He was alone by himself. Verse 10 starts out by saying, yet it was Jehovah, God's will, to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So all of this is by God's design, that his son would suffer. All of it was by his design. None of it was a mistake. None of it was a, well, let's just see how it happens. Every step of the way, the father looks down and says, my son needs to suffer because he's going to be given an offspring that is amazing and beautiful and spotless. He's going to accomplish something that no one else could accomplish, saving his people from their sins. Verse 11, and after he has suffered, and that was real suffering. His suffering on the cross was real, absolute suffering. It was physical and it was spiritual beyond our imagination. And we suffer, and we suffer as well. I'm not saying that that's imaginary or you shouldn't really, you can't think lightly about your suffering, that what you might be going through is tough. It is. But his suffering, you have to magnify it by millions. Millions. We're just dealing with one person in one body and one flesh that suffers and has hardships. His suffering is everybody's body. Everybody's suffering. Everybody's dark place. Everybody's sin. He assumed it and absorbed it as his own. That is real suffering. That is is a suffering that only God himself can bear. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So after his suffering, there is a promise of life. And we've seen that in the resurrection. He rose from the dead. And in that, he will be satisfied. There's a sense of accomplishment, success, victory, that all of the suffering, all the betrayal, all the pain, all of the mocking, all the agony was worth it. Because in the end, there's life. And not just his life, our life, your life. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. You're in that group the justified the many, made right the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, and this is God speaking, therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made the intercession for the transgressors. You see, the end goal 
of all these promises about Jesus, of all these pictures in Isaiah, the end goal of all the songs about Bethlehem, of all the songs about away in the manger and joy to the world and silent night, holy night, all the carols, all the gifts, all the cards, all the decorations are wrapped up into one purpose, one singular thing, to acknowledge God has come in the form of a man and saved his people from their sins. You cannot have the manger without the cross. You cannot have the cross without the manger. You cannot have future hope of heaven when you die without all of it. It's one story about one person, and it is an amazing story about an amazing person. And he asks us, do you trust me? Do you trust me to take care of that dark place that you're in right now? Do you trust me to be the God in that relationship? Do you trust me with your finances? Do you trust me with your health? Do you trust me with your age? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Later on in Hebrews, written 750 years after this, the author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. Now, the high priest is Jesus. That's the whole, book of, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to show us how Jesus Christ is our final high priest, ultimate and amazing go between God the Father and us. Jesus is our high priest. And the question is, we, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. Jesus knows our weakness. He lived it. He died. How many of you have died? I almost caught you. Some of you are like, oh, I'm feeling dead right now. No, you're not dead. You're alive. Jesus has already experienced death. He knows what it's like. He knows the fear of that moment. On that cross, he was in agony. On that cross, it was agony just not because he dies, but because he bears the weight of the sins of the world. You don't have to bear that in your death. Yes, it is different. Yes, it is not something we've experienced. And yes, we can be uncertain about how's it going to feel? What's it going to be like? What about the people I leave? Jesus has experienced all that. He's experienced what it's like to have no friends. He's experienced what it's like to be lonely. He's experienced what it's like to have the world against him. That's nothing new. He knows what it's like to feel pain and sorrow. He knows what it's like to have one of his good friends die. He's felt that. He's cried. He's wept. He's mourned. He's looked at culture and said, oh, how has it gotten like this? He's seen that. And so no matter what you are going through, no matter if you think no one else has ever experienced it, you can rush to Jesus' arms and say, help. You can rush to him and say, I can't do it. You can admit to him, I'm weak. You can go to him and not have a word to say. 
and just simply say, I'm here, all of me, the good, the bad, the ugly, I'm here. And you don't have to have a word to say because the Spirit, His Holy Spirit implanted in your heart already knows what you need, already knows where you need forgiveness, already knows where you need strength. You don't have to communicate to Him with that in words. There are some times you're just going through something where you can't express it. I think one of the things that drives people crazy is you're having a bad day. Who knows what it is? And they keep asking, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Well, I'll tell you what's beginning to be wrong is you asking me, what's wrong? Anyone's ever had a day like that? Sometimes, yeah, we all have days like that. Some of us wear it better than others. I get it. But with God, you go into his presence he does not have to hammer you with, so what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong? Tell me, tell me. I know something's going on. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. You just have to be in his presence. And there is automatically, you are undone before him. He sees what's going wrong. And he knows. He can empathize with that. He can relate to it. He knows what it, feel, what it feels like to be weak and humbled and alone. He knows what it's like to be persecuted and prosecuted. He knows what it's like to be dealt with unfairly. He knows that. He knows the pressure of doing right. He knows that. He knows what it's like to deal with parents who are not perfect. He knows what it's like to deal with siblings that are not perfect. He knows that. And so we have a high priest, someone who goes between us and God. He knows what we suffer. And the obvious thing is, well, Jesus takes on that humanity with all of its sorrows, failings, and disappointments, even sin, so that he can relate to us. You may not be able to relate to me. We may not have that connection. You may not have that connection with many people. Maybe you, you feel you don't have that connection with anybody. Maybe you feel you can't trust anybody else. But you can trust him. You can tell him anything. You can share with him exactly how you're feeling and exactly what you're struggling with, and he's not going to turn on you, laugh at you, or judge you. He's going to say, come all who are weary, all who are tired, all who are suffering, all who feel lonely, all who feel sick, all who have fear, all who are depressed, all of you who need, I'm here. And I will love you, care for you, and nurture you, and support you, and teach you, and show you mercy. I will not beat you. I will not turn on you. You can trust me. And the reason why we know we can trust him is look at all that he's done. Look at all that he's already done. He's taken care of sin. 
He's taking care of sin. There is nothing that you can bring to him that will surprise him or disappoint him. He already knows it. He knows everything locked away in secret in your heart, and he knows everything that you lay bare in front of the world. He knows. You can trust him. So maybe this is a time, maybe this is a moment, maybe this is your moment, where you look at this whole Christmas thing and you realize that with all of its traditions and all of its fun and all of its excitement and all of its joy in the world, that you can come before your Savior, your high priest, and say, hey, we need to have a talk. I have felt so far from you. And this is just reminding me of how near you've always been to me. I need to be near to you. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anyone here. I pray for all of us who may be in a dark place, who may be feeling that the world is overwhelming us, who have fears in their lives regarding anything. I pray, Father, that this would be a moment where you could show us that we can rest in you, that we can fall in your arms, that we can trust fall into your graces, and that you will care for us and take care of us. Lord, draw near to us. Show us that we are near to you. Father, and let us celebrate the glorious promise of your son's birth with real joy in our hearts, knowing that it's not just about a manger and the stories that warm our hearts, but it's about your sacrifice that warms our hearts. Lord, free us from fear. Free us from sickness. Free us from sorrows. Free us from anger. Free us from unforgiveness. Free us from everything that hinders us so that we might look to you for our only hope in this world and the next. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen.